Hi everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. As we step out of lockdown and isolation and cast the athleisure wear aside, we come into a moment in fashion that celebrates colour and joy. It's time to express ourselves. It's time to be seen. So this is Style Stories Season 7, a series which continues to share stories of creative people with a strong sense of style, but with a celebration of colourful and camp styles that ask bigger questions of our Australian identity. And if expressing ourselves and being seen is important, I've gotten a whole lot more visual and released a mini documentary on YouTube and Instagram that helps answer these style questions and tell the story of the colours of camp in Australia. Today, I'm chatting with Deborah Laser, fabric artist, textile designer and printmaker. Despite being the daughter of Bernie Laser, the original founder of Vogue Australia, Deborah's fashion influence stands in her own right, with her acclaimed work widely exhibited across Australia, New York and London. Deborah likes to run to the beat of her own drum and has a rebellious, full-of-life spirit and a colourful, multi-layered attitude that perfectly paints a picture of the eye-catching spectrum that is her style. I hope you can sit back, relax and enjoy listening to Deborah's story. Hi Deborah, thank you so much for joining me on Style Stories today. Uh, when I start these interviews, the objective is to go back to somebody's childhood um, and really explore those uh, moments of identity forming um, in their life that, you know, have been critical and formative and seeing that through the lens of fashion. <laughs> you have an exceptional start, though, in terms of um, the way that your personal history uh has begun with your your dad uh, being Bernie Laser and having you know established Australia uh, Vogue in Australia. Yes, but that was not my very first years. I was actually born in Montreal in yeah. Canada, yep. where Dad was working before he's before he started Vogue. He was um, in textiles actually and was working in Montreal. So I happened to be born there, which was. A fabulous start because it's wonderful to have a Canadian passport as well as an Australian one. Maybe that's not the thing to be saying now, but having dual citizenship in this world is a wonderful thing. So already from a very young age, though, because of Dad being based there and, and a lot of family in Australia, we travelled a lot. Mm -hmm. And already by the age of two, I'd been around the world three times. So I really did have it. In Which my... at that time would have been quite an exceptional thing. It's not. I mean. Some two-year-olds do get to travel that much, yeah. but maybe maybe not with coronavirus. But no, not these, not these days. <laughs> but but at, at that time, it would have been very rare for a child to have that much exposure to the rest of the world. I Look, imagine. We, that's one thing I can say. I've had a, a very worldly life. Let's say I've had a, a lot of. I've met wonderful people, a lot due to my father, and um, and my mother. They both have brought so much culture and colour and and brilliant calibre of people and creative people into my life, um, which I've been exposed to since I was, you know, five, when Dad um, came to Australia to establish Vogue for Condé Nast Publications. So, uh, yes, I'd say before then, if I'm thinking of the formative things that 
awakened my sense of colour. I mean, I always had a pencil in my hand, apparently, according to my mother, from really about the age of two, one or two. They would just leave me. They could leave me for hours and I would be very content and I would be drawing in my little cot and my little table and I had all my sets of pencils and colouring paints and things. And I also, I just remember too, at my birthday parties, all these amazing sweets, these incredible jelly snakes and all these kind of quite psychedelic lollipops and things like that. And they made a really huge impression on me. Yeah. All these bright, bright colours always was something I was very attracted to way before, you know, <laughs> the hippie movement. <laughs> so would you say it was Oh, no, it wasn't before, but it was before I was really exposed to, to those other kind of psychedelic ways of being. Yes, yes, yes. Would you say that your childhood was vivid? Like, do you, it, was it punctuated by really bright moments? Uh, um, simple things. Like, I remember when we were just going to the beach in Cornwall, for example. That was the first time I'd actually been to the beach was in England. But everything was so bright. And that was my... F and there were a lot of fairs on by the water... And so really circus was, uh, circus and water already had a very strong influence on me at a very young age. I was always very attracted to the circus. I'd a couple of times nearly threatened to join a troupe <laughs> and um, I nearly could have joined a troupe. Knowing you for just a little time, Deborah, it doesn't surprise me that, that yes. you might have decided to up and join a circus at well, some circus, point. Well, I actually wanted to join Peter Brooks, um, who wrote the Mahabharata and he did Conference of the Birds. I really wanted to go into his travelling theatre group right. more than anything as a musician and an actor. But that was more of a whim than a reality. Yeah. Um, but that's I've always been attracted to, also since very young, to mystical Eastern kind of sensual sounds and smells and just chants and things. I think since I was very young, I, I, I used to crash a yoga class when I was about 11 um, when my mother used to go shopping in Neutral Bay. I, I found this yoga class because she parked the car somewhere. I don't know how it happened. <laughs> and I actually got, got permission to go to this yoga class eventually. So, so was that something that was underpinning your household, like the, these kind of alternative uh, things, or was this something that that you yeah. found particularly for yourself, Deborah? I think everything was alternative in our house in a, on a certain level. Yeah. It was not a normal household. Yeah. Um, no, we weren't in particularly into like brown rice and granola in those days, but that did happen in my growing up years. We suddenly, we did fi find a naturopath and we all went to the naturopath. Dad went, Mum, my brothers, we all went to this brilliant naturopath and that did change our life quite a lot in our organic kind of, yeah. kind of lifestyle-ish things that we introduced. Yeah. Um, not that Dad ate much brown rice, I must say, but <laughs> um, growing up was just... You were asking me about the influences yeah, um, I, I, in my... Oh, I, was my house... Look, we had a house a bit like a hotel. We used to call it the Laser Hotel. We had amazing people come um, to parties, to lunches, to dinners. My parents entertained a huge amount and they also went out a huge amount. And that part of Dad's job was to meet and meet and greet and dine and wine visitors from all over the world. So... Zander Rhodes was a hugely exciting event for me because already from about the age of 
probably about more like seven years old, I started to become obsessed with fashion. I looked at magazines all the time. I was actually the only one in the family even vaguely interested. Including your father? Dad looked at... Well, he didn't sit around reading fashion magazines except more to see how much advertising there was. And right, so he was more the pages. into the business of fashion Dad is, Dad is very much the, inside the business of fashion. Dad was the business. He, he left everything. He found the best, best people. He always said, delegate to the most brilliant people you can possibly find. And then you leave them as independently working as possible. So... He, he's been said that he was um, the man to define a style identity in Australia. Oh, <laughs> that's the first I've heard. Really? I, I read that somewhere in pre- preparing for our interview. Um, what, what is your take on that? He was a motivator and a supporter and a, possibly he, he sensed change very, very well. Mm. Um, he gauged the mood and the current of, of what was going on in, in not only fashion but also in historical events that happened. He was an incredible reader and he just knew a lot of what was going on. But fashion, he, you know, I mean, we never in our family really slavishly followed fashion ever. My mother has always been a total individual. She's always worn what she's wanted to wear. She's never followed the fashion book. She barely wears any makeup and she's very natural. Mm. But she is so colourful, even she's 92 now, and she still dresses beautifully, like amazing colours, amazing fabrics. She's, she's a true original. And uh, I think she helped keep us all very down to earth in that world we were growing up in. Because yeah, I imagine there was a lot of privilege in that world. Well, not really. In a way, we, had, um, we, we met these fabulous people. We went to lovely restaurants. Mm. We did have some nice... Holidays, yep. Yeah. So, yes, there were those kind of privileges, but we didn't have... No, we... Dad was an employee of Condé Nast at that point. Mm. You know, he was a general... He started off as a general manager and then he worked his way up. Mm. And, uh, no, we did, I, I think we were, we were quite a normal family. I think we were obviously a lot more privileged than a lot of people in this world. Yeah. But, um, no, we had to make sure we turned all the lights off and we had to still budget on things and economise. We didn't have extravagant kind of lifestyle at all. And uh, uh, all these people who perceived us as, a, you know, very glamorous or the world we were in as very glamorous, to me it never was really that, except we, I suppose, that became the norm. Like Varushka came for dinner and the, the Margot Fontaine came for dinner and the Hungarian, was it the Prague or the Hungarian ballet, the whole company came for dinner. <laughs> um, all our friends would when they couldn't cope with their families, would come and stay at our place. They'd leave home yeah. and they'd come and live with us. We had friends all the time living with us who just had terrible, you know, ordeals at their place. And we had so much freedom because our parents were out so often yep. that, in fact, we kind of ran a little bit of mock. <laughs> we just did our own thing. We had kind of nannies and things. Yeah. But mum and dad were out all the time. So um, we had to... We've, we've formed our own very individual characters in a way mm. because we had to bring ourselves up half the time. Right. And we had all those, also this exposure to a lot of culture, a lot of... Uh, I don't even think the design world really made its presence quite... Not when we were young teenagers. It, I mean, it did in the terms of fashion, but we, we didn't have... We just had a very down-to-earth home that we grew up in. We didn't have a desi- everything designer 
yeah. anything really. But I imagine those those dinner parties were pretty special. What was it like as a kid to to kind of experience the exposure to uh, to that that those creative beings in your house? You, were you invited into the conversation? Was it something that I remember you were I was, encouraged to? I was with Zandra mm. in particular, and Verushka. Actually, I went on a shoot with Verushka mm. and her Italian boyfriend, Franco Rubatelli. I mean, I got on fantastically well with with her, mm -hmm. Verushka. She was at that point the top model in the world. My brother had asked as many school friends as he possibly could to come <laughs> over, so that we, they could all drool over Verushka. And she was absolutely stunning, and but she was also so natural and down to earth as well. But yeah. so she and her boyfriend invited me to come out on a shoot with them the next day or the day after, because you had an interest in fashion. Yes, I wanted and, to be a fashion and, designer, and yeah. uh, and they just we just got on so well. So I, I remember they. I've still got the photos somewhere. They're very politically incorrect now. I have a big fur. Cossack hat on and I'm smoking a cigar oh. and I'm 13 or 14. I would 14. love to see that photo. I'm 13 or 14 <laughs> yeah. and I'm smoking a cigar with a Cossack fur hat on. Yeah. I'd always kind of idolised her. I'd seen some of her fashion in Vogue and she had pink hair. She's always had pretty well pink hair and she spoke with her Cockney accent. She's also very down to earth. These are real people. There's, um, that aspect of the, that world... Uh, I suppose because mum and dad are both very down-to-earth people. Dad had his own kind of style and and very dignified and whatever, but he he could be a bit of a snob sometimes. But he was also very warm and open and he didn't... Neither of them ever put on false airs and graces. And I'm very... That's no, one of the no greatest legacies I have, that I could grow up in this, in a way, this, what is this world of supposed glamour or superficiality on another level or... Uh, you know, just the cutting edge of what's happening in our world, and yet we had real, nor we had normal, down-to-earth kind of lives, yeah. and we had a lot of culture apart from the culture of the magazine culture. We we studied music. We I went to dance classes. We you know did masses of other. I sailed. I had my own little boat, and we we did lots of other. Things yeah. I made lots of clothes for my dolls. I must say, I adored fashion. I, I must. I was totally obsessed with fashion. And so, what was that like for you? You've, you, your dad's working for for Vogue, and you're you're, but you're the one that sees fashion for the joy of the creativity in your household. What well, what was it like? Was there was it supportive for you to pursue a career in in that no, field? Not, it look. I think they wanted me to do whatever I felt. Um, my, wherever I felt my fortes lay, but um, I mean, I was always told to stop wasting time every time I, my mother caught me reading a fashion magazine. So there was already some contradictory yeah, uh, things messages. That, yes, <laughs> and Dad was very, very sensitive about nepotism, and so was I. I mean, as it was, often people said, "Oh, you're Bernie Lazer's daughter." Yeah. There was a lot of assumptions made that if I did fashion, I mean, of course, I would have got my leg in through my father mm. and that every success I ever had probably would be... There would be this innuendo that it was because of my dad. Yeah. What I, what happened in the end, I, I grew up here and then I went for the fashion um, design. There was a big exam you had to do to get into fashion design yeah. at East Sydney Tech. Mm -hmm. I got into the 
college with, you know, flying colours pretty well. I, w I loved drawing designs and clothes and I, they gave us three different fabrics and asked us to put it into one kind of dress. And uh, I was a natural at being a fashion designer in a way, except I didn't like sewing. I have a very bad astigmatism in my left eye and I, everything, I, even threading a needle was a bit of a nightmare. Um, but apart from the sewing aspect of it, <laughs> I mean, I loved fashion and designing, but then I just, boom, like that, I changed my mind. I got, I got into graphic design as well. Right. Um, because I started to have these doubts that I just wouldn't be able to cope with the fickle nature of that world, mm. that there'd be too much gossip that everything I did, you know, would be... Judged against of dad, your, your You know, father, whatever. Yeah. I mean, my feelings were in a way, I mean... They came to be realised, my some of those fears in some ways, because uh, even when I was selling to all the stores in New York and selling in George's here in Melbourne and mm. selling um, to incredible Belinda, the boutique, and doing collections for Pruactin, and I did have a, a really good working relationship with Linda Jackson, I must say, and I would do the fabrics for her. She would then make up the garments with them and then they would all go into Flamingo Park right. with Jenny, Jenny's shop. Yeah. And uh, I must say that was very... I didn't get paid particularly well, but you see, by the time she hand-sewed everything and then went wholesale, retail, sewed, you know, it, be, it still... It, she had to be businesslike about sure. it. Yeah. But, so uh, let's go back a step. Yes. You, you, when we were preparing for our interview, you said that you, you had moved overseas before you came back to Australia and started working yes, with Yes, I had actually. Linda. Yes, I did. I did. And that, that was a key inspiration point Well, for I studied um, graphic design, but I, as I said, for three years, and then I was really disenchanted with it. I just thought I did not want to go into advertising. I'm really sick of what these teachers are telling me is wrong and right. I'm, I don't like the way they're... Is this your rebellious spirit oh, coming I've, through? I've always had it. I've always had a rebellious spirit. I've always followed my own light in a way. Yeah. I'm definitely not a follower. Yes. I've always gone... And since I was very young, I've beat, beat, beat to my own drum, as mm. they say. And um, although I have had a few mentors, I've had... Judy Cassab, the artist, was one of my mentors. I loved her. Um, and I love learning. So I've always looked up to great people great and minds. great teachers and great minds. Yeah. And I've always valued that. But I'm not, you know, I didn't go running after a guru when I went to India because I wanted to find myself. I did not believe I'd find it through a guru. Do you think, was, was going overseas a way of you doing exactly that, finding yourself, rebelling against anything here, or was no, it just a journey of discovery for you? Um, I wasn't consciously rebelling. I mean, I've been going overseas forever. I mean, yeah, when I was... You were well-travelled. When I was a, t a teenager, I, we went, I went to Fiji by myself when I was 16 yeah. to stay with some friends there, and I went to New Zealand at 10 by myself to see my grandparents... And uh, so then when I was 19, I went to Europe by myself. That was an incredible adventure. When I was... Then when Dad was posted to British Vogue, um, we all got a ticket to move to London. Right. This was in the 70s. OK. Late... Towards the late 70s. And uh, we all got a ticket as a family to go to London because we were still pretty young in those days. And 
um, I immediately announced I was going to cash my ticket in and go overland to London, to which my parents were pretty horrified because actually, yeah, I, was, I wanted to do the whole trip overland. Right. And I was on a quest. What, to did, what, did, what did that entail? What did that entail? Yeah, what, do, what does doing the whole trip overland actually mean? Oh, my what God. Does that, it's, what the right, it's, it's like the hero's journey, the Joseph Campbell hero's <laughs> journey, your rites of passage. I mean, you are tested to the limit. It's the best education. Is, it, is this your way, Deborah, to find the hard way? Like, is that, I, is it, I, I very rarely do things the easy way. <laughs> yeah, very, I could like never it. have done the work I, I would do if yeah. I had chosen the easy way because yeah. a lot of the work I used to do so labour intensive, mm. just so incredibly labour intensive. It's not like embroidery labour. That's, it's all all the artisans' work is labour intensive and done with the hand, and I love that. And that's really, I think my specialty more than anything is what all the techniques that I love and that I do, that are handmade. They're like artisan techniques mm. that I have, you know, specialised in and, and really quite. I won't say I'm a master of them, but it's like anything. If you practice it enough, you can get pretty adept at it and uh, so it's technique and processes and, and I've learned most of them traveling particularly in, in Asia um, I studied um, for a, a year in Japan in a kimono workshop Kobo they call it a Kobo I had a grant from the Australia Council spent a year there and that was a huge oh that was the best gift I ever could have had and I had a, a fantastic teacher in Jogjakarta as well called Kazuaji K. So I had the two double Ks because the Kuriyama Kobo was in Kyoto mm -hmm. and Kazuaji K was in Jogjakarta. And I had spent a week looking all over Jogjakarta for a really great batik school to go to. I'd left graphic design. I said, no, I'm not going back. I had gone to Southeast Asia for a little trip with my family and I kind of said, look, I'm not going to come back. I'm going to go to, on to Indonesia. I'm going to find a school there. And uh, I found the best teacher in, I think, the whole of Java. So a very good technical teaching I did, on colour and form. Not so much colour, no. I've always had to break the rules with colour. <laughs> I've been told all my life I can't do this, I can't do that, and shouldn't, even in Japan. Not so much Indonesia, because we were using certain dyes that, you know, it was very tricky to even get the colours mm. you wanted with those naphthol dyes that we used for the batik initially. But then when I finally finished my overland trip and finally got to London, after a stint working at Harvey Nichols in the basement punching price tags because mm. I lost my floor job because the Home Office wasn't sure if my visa was in order. So right. I would have loved to have been on the floor at, at uh, Harvey Nichols because um, I actually quite like selling other people's things. Mm. I, d I have more trouble selling my own things, mm -hmm. but I do love that interaction with collaboration. The and I love collaboration and I love also dealing with people when they're great, of course. <laughs> um, the customer experience. I mean, I have worked, I worked in boutiques in New York while I was still working as a textile artist, but I had part-time jobs in a um, couple of different really fabulous boutiques in New York. And what did all of those experiences do to inform your personal style? It probably just distilled my more and more my own personal sensibilities. Uh, in some ways, I'm a little impervious or totally open. I, it's a bit of that contradiction. It's like, um, look, in New York, I didn't seem to tone down at all. I just got wilder and wilder. I was 
I found everyone very conservative in New York. What, what did that look like for you? What does wild, wild oh, in New York look like? Oh, corsets and really bright colours. And oh, there was one place where I went for lunch, the Sherry Netherlands. It was very shishi in the Pierre Hotel. And I had this pretty wild outfit on with a little flounce on the back and very body, very form-fitting, yeah. um, with a silk hand-painted jacket on. And I was told I was dressed totally unsuitably. But I had to walk, they put me in a back, and I was with Evelyn Lauder, um, Estee Lauder's daughter-in-law, yeah, and, yeah. and my mother, and we were going there for lunch. And in the end, we made a complete spectacle of the whole thing because they put me in a table, or us in a t at a table in the far corner, so we had to walk through the whole restaurant <laughs> and then go back to the kind of... So, so you had your own parade. <laughs> I had my own parade, you know. And So, I mean, even when I went to a lot of Vogue functions... I had to come up with outfits for myself to wear. I'd never had a budget to go and buy dresses. Mm. When I was much younger, Mum would take me to Trent Nathan and Prue Acton and I had some beautiful clothes. Norma Tullow was a very close friend of my mother's and I had some beautiful clothes from a lot of designers. But I suppose the more and more, the more I started creating my own things and fabrics and collections for designers and started uh, just... I was doing also a small collection myself of uh, hand-painted fashion, of just couture-like pieces, one-of-a-kind pieces. And I sold those pieces to the you know, different galleries. The Victoria National Gallery has mm. a whole... They have a couple of outfits there. And yeah. Powerhouse has also a whole ensemble that was in a big travelling show that went to Edinburgh, the right. software show. I mean, I, that's another thing. I did participate in... A lot of uh, a lot of shows, uh, and I travelled a lot for those shows. So, so your your techniques have been celebrated, um, obviously in Australia, and probably differentiated you when you when you came back to Australia from London. Do you think that's what differentiated yes. you, or these international experiences? And well, these I hadn't had all I hadn't had all those experiences. Quite I've, yet. I've, I've yeah. kind of jumped. You get horse. backwards and forwards. I've That's gone right. back, very backwards and forwards. <laughs> Those things happen after I had established myself. Right. What what I did do when I got to London and finally got my first studio um, there in Stockwell, 401 and a half workshops in the Wandsworth Road. It was a bit of a rough part of London, but it was a fantastic collective, collective studio. Um, I got the French dyes, uh, so I had them imported from France the Sennelia dyes, and instead of dip-dyeing my fabric in the traditional Indonesian way, the batik, I used the wax technique as a resist technique. And I was, I was applying it in more of a Japanese way, as I later came to find out when I studied in Japan. So you were effectively doing a, like an international fusion before yeah. the, 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 yeah. the idea of fusion. And... I was, actually, I was, that's yeah. right. I've never quite thought of it like that, but... I was, and so um, I was doing really quite well in London too. I had just did a huge conference for Billboard magazine. I was started to work with Yuki, this wonderful Japanese designer. I did a record cover for this on Asbatik called Supernova for a musician, and um, I started getting quite a lot of commissions. And then did you did you move back to Australia? I moved. I actually got I got run. I got hit by a car. Yeah, and. I was out of action for six months and right. I, the brilliant studio I was just about to move to from my little little one where I was doing all this work, I had suddenly gone up in the world and I was going to the upstairs studio mm. 
Well, once I finally got out of hospital, I couldn't actually walk upstairs because I couldn't put any weight on my foot for six months. So I lost that studio. I couldn't keep it. And I had to come back to Australia. I had my Canadian passport and I, even though I was a naturalised Australian, mm. um, Dad had forgotten that he'd had me naturalised at birth, <laughs> basically. And so I had to come back to Australia, immigrate virtually to come back here. Right. Um, and not long after I did come back to Australia, I went to Flamingo Park to visit right. Flamingo Park yes. and straight away met Linda Jackson. Okay. We hit it off immediately. I told her what I did and she said, well, come and visit me and come and see me and show me what you do. And boom, like that, I, I had pretty well as much work as I could possibly do. And did you find your own like tribe with that group of people at the time or was it just you a particular relationship with Linda? I met, if I'd go into her studio, particularly when she moved to William Street, I met amazing people through her. But no, my, it was, it's very solitary work. It's, mm. you know, it was very labour intensive solitary work. I was influenced by the colour and the amazing lack of inhibition, the originality, but also the beautiful finesse she was a brilliant she is a wonderful designer even though she might do these wild petal outfits and fantastic flamboyant you know appliques and prints and everything there was so much substance and integrity and depth to what she did mm. which and is yes, why she's so celebrated right which she really that yeah. both of them you know they really yeah. it's not just australiana in fact it's not there's a depth to what they do. It's and it's got quality. It's it's really got. There's nothing worse than I think, doing a very tawdry recreation of Australiana in a way. I mean, when I say that, I don't mind a rainbow road. I love anything with a rainbow in yeah. it, um, and it can veer on tacky-ish, you mm. know, or garish, mm. but certainly the way Linda and Jenny worked and what influenced me was. Just the absolute beauty and exuberance and the uplift of those um, magnificent colours and textures and things that they used. But I think what helped me to be receptive to that was I had been in India mm. uh, on this trip over land before I had my studio in London. I had my whole conditioning just turned on its head. I went to India, I spent nearly eight months in India. I went to Sri Lanka in between and went back to India. I had never seen anything like the colours and this, that's when my senses were totally awakened. Mm -hmm. That's when a lot of my college kind of indoctrination of what you can do and can't, that's all just flew out the window pretty well. <laughs> and coupled that. with a naturally rebellious spirit, you, you knew how to break the rules oh, in the I right so ways. Did. Like, you know, I was riding <laughs> elephants in India and on camels and, I mean, I was in workshops in Jaipur already. I was going there and doing some block printing and mm -hmm. um, I remember I was in some youth hostel with a friend of mine and I had bought all these saris. We were the only two people in the whole place. We strung up the whole room with the most amazing saris. We just draped the whole room to turn it into like a tent. This is a youth hostel. I mean, yeah. but they loved it so much what we'd done. They just were like amazed <laughs> how we had transformed this quite boring room in the youth hostel. Yeah. Um, but it was a special youth hostel too. I mean, um, the, all of India, that was the most wonderful, perfect timing for me to go to India when I was like 20. Yeah. And just... 
have a new, have a new education, just have it all, just have all the rules thrown away and just look at colour, living colour. And that's what Jenny and Linda really have this. And that, that was your connection point? No, the colour, the, the, no. the or the the freedom of 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 expression. I just connected on every level, really. Right. You know, really, just with Linda, I really did connect pretty well. I met Linda first, and we're both Virgos. We're, there's a strong affinity that we have, mm -hmm. and um, and Jenny was just so bright and enthusiastic. Just of course, I warmed to her too very much. So, but what would you say is your so obviously there was a bit of a movement for what, what they were doing at the time that's being particularly focused on and celebrated right now in, in oh, media. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what would you say is, was your personal influence or integration into, into that kind of phase of fashion in Australia? Having met Jenny and Linda or Linda and Jenny here and also I had started to work with designers in London already when I had my studio there and having been to Asia and Southeast Asia and already done some study, this was before Japan when I met Linda yeah. here and had my studio here. Um, I think I was able to bring all the worldly exposure like the, of the world I'd been mixing in. I'd been educated on high fashion. I'd met all these incredible people at a very young age, these wonderful creative people. In a way, creativity was around us. I, I think because I also had a lot of technical aptitude um, and was also quite a loner in a way. I mean, I liked my own company from really quite a young age. Mm. I spent a lot of time drawing on my own from a very young age. And that's what was required to do this work was a lot of very long, solitary Intensive hours. Work. I mean, I did start studios and work in collective studios, but I still... Um, had my own space and would work, you know, into the wee hours often, you know, mm. three, sometimes, you know, depending on the deadline. I'd, I did so many scary deadlines <laughs> that were like, you know, death, finish this work or, you know, it was scary being in fashion, particularly in New York too. I did jobs for Halston and I did, they revived the Halston yeah, label and, yeah. um, you know, I did, I did work with quite a few, Naeem Khan and a few other designers. I was going to work with Mary McFadden, the designer, and she said, I, I, oh yeah, I can use you. <laughs> and I, I thought, no, you can't use me, I'm sorry. And I wouldn't work for her, I, and that was the thing. If I didn't like someone, I actually got to the point I didn't work for them. And uh, so I was very, yeah, I was very much my own person. In fact, I, if I'd actually not broken so many rules, I possibly would have done a lot better <laughs> in my field. If I had also gone and worked in Paris with a, a designer, I mean, I, I had work offered to me in Paris and I never actually went and lived in Paris. Do you think that your work, because um, obviously you're talking about these international experiences and the, the, these prolific designers that you, you did get to partner with, um, do you think that your work was more celebrated in the international market than in Australia at the time? Were you finding more opportunities overseas than here? No, not necessarily. I had masses of work here at one, at one stage, particularly mm. in the 80s, and in the 90s I moved to New York. So early 80s I went to Japan and studied, 81 to 82. Mm. When I came back I, I really could work on a much bigger scale. I mean the scope in that one year of where I went to where I found myself was enormous and I was much more confident technically 
and um, had much more freedom to do big, huge banners and installation works and long lengths for fashion. And I had massive opportunities here and then I also was sending work to London from my um, the connections I'd made in London. With Yuki, I continued to send him lengths of fabric. He'd just say, do me 10 metres of this kind of thing. I could send him a swatch, photograph something. He'd give me a couple of colours, colours he wanted. And so he went on for years using my fabrics. I did some fabric designs for Japan, the Japanese market through him. Yeah. And then also in New York, I was producing the work in my studio in Oxford Street called the Kobo. Um, what, what does that mean? Workshop. Right. In Japanese. Yeah, Japanese. Where I studied the, in Japan yeah, was yeah, called Kuriyama Kobo. Yeah. And so I called it the Kobo, the yeah. workshop. And um, I was sitting my scarves to Barney's in New York and... And did they have that Australia at the time? Was, was it that, that same sense of uh, colour? We started to get a bit more subtle in those days. But right. look, I think I always brought... I think what there is in Australia and that completely relates to myself and to many Australians, we do have a certain irreverence. Yes. And I do think that, you know, I, in the 80s, you know, I had Mardi Gras parties from my studio. It was, we had the best view... Yes. In Sydney. Well, we, we, we established that where your studio I actually occupied some time in the yeah, same I know, space. Incredible, it's... I know. <laughs> Many years later, but I actually got the whole floor. You were talking about an irreverence yes. that, that kind of worked through the, the people that you were you were working with all the time or, or the Australian sensibility, if you like. What does, what does that mean to you? What does, how would you define that and what does it look like? It means in a way, you, you set your own rules, kind of at your own risk in a way. You, uh, non-conformity, you don't, there is room and space in Australia, you don't have to conform. I think growing up here, there was enough space. There was so much space and the light was conducive and the incredible nature that we have, the flora and fauna here, is also amazing and dramatic. And I think... It, there was a lot less formalities. I mean, I went to kindergarten in, in London and I'd done with all this travelling. I could see a lot of the... Uh, I mean, it was much more inhibited initially in London. Um, then the punk movement, of course, started and, and it was very, very wild and the hippie movement was a bit before my, the major hippie movement. Um, I was still in nappies <laughs> nearly in the 60s. But... Um, I think coming here, there was a huge, with the water, particularly of Sydney and the sparkle of the city, and this, of course, this gay culture that, you know, was very exuberant and excited and very creative. There were some brilliant people, brilliant artists, also working with Linda. Um, David McDiamond was working with her, and um, he was a wonderful artist. Peter Tully, who was absolutely brilliant. And, and I, you know, it was an amazingly creative exciting, exuberant and irreverent whole kind of scene that was happening mm. in the 80s. What did it feel like to be part of that? It just, it... I wasn't really, look, I wasn't really, I was kind of in the background because, with it. Yeah. I wasn't really in that scene so much. I mean, I did party, go to parties and things like that, but no, I was mainly working. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I did go to a lot of parties, <laughs> but, you know, it would... In the end, the work was, it was, I was completely work obsessed pretty well in the 80s. Yeah. And uh, I had so much work for nightclubs and 
everything I brought, though, my sense of colour and my own individuality to, and I think that's why people sought me out. It was just not anything stereotype, that I also could be very adaptable and I could meet the requirements. Someone would give me a brief, and I would... I was very excited by that, just the, all the masses of different um, approaches and interpretations and just that synergy of working with all kinds of, in both fashion and interiors and couture and more like speedo, like swimwear as well. Like, yeah. rep, there was a, a huge scope to what I was doing, really, yeah. I must say. And so, so what made you, you, you say that you've gone full circle and you, you've, you've moved into naturopathy as a career path as well as like continuing your textile art and your, your, your art therapy. Yes. Uh, what made you move away from the, the textile artwork into naturopathy or did you never really move away from it? I needed a break. <laughs> I needed a, I, I just, I called it dying for a living, you know, basically. Um, I just, as more digital printing came in to our lives, and there was also quite a lot of copying in that world of textiles. It was quite a tough world, and things, fashion changed. Like, we, you come into, uh, it was very difficult to make a living, to continue to make a living as an artisan, and it was just really back-breaking, long, long hours, and very solitary in its nature, and I just thought, I've there's so many other interests that I have mm. that I wanted to pursue. But what I did, I studied to become a naturopath. We had a gruelling three years becoming a nutritionist. I thought, oh, my God, I don't think I can face another two years as a naturopath. And I also knew many wonderful naturopaths. I thought, I'll be a nutritionist, but I want to use my creativity in a therapeutic way. I want to do something with the creativity I have, but be able to help other people facilitate other people becoming more creative as well. So I'd be very interested in art therapy and the therapeutic nature of, of being creative for a long time. And so it just felt very simpatico to go from naturopathy, nutrition, into therapeutic art. So I did then two years of study, pretty intensive as well as an art therapist. And so now, yes, I am a qualified art therapist and a nutritionist, and I'm just developing... I have given quite a few workshops already... Mm. But I'm getting back to my textile work again now and I do nutrition consultations and some, of course I don't do them all at once, but I find it all very um, connected in, yeah. a, in its own kind of funny way. And do you find that um, that connection point, it, you do, do you, in terms of your personal style now, how has that all come together uh, as you've evolved and kind of nourished yourself? I love fashion and style, whatever, but I suppose I take less notice of it now. But I, you're still incredibly unique. Oh, <laughs> I think I have to be very resourceful with the way I dress, so I kind of just... I put it together very instinctively yeah. how I, I just love texture and colour and I love beautiful fabrics. And I just... Yeah, I just put it together without really... I do think about it, but it's, it's nearly subconscious unconscious just and I think you know even now I could easily I would love to be a dresser for so many people I see I would love to restyle a lot of people I, <laughs> I know and redo their hair their makeup their styling just actually make them a bit more oomphy and uh, express themselves a bit more not be so inhibited I, I see so many people so inhibited in the way they dress yes 
and and I just love to go and just you know I mean I yeah I would really like to loosen people up a bit. Well, but people are very stitched up at times the way they present themselves. Conservative, I, yes, conservative. And I think that sums up the interview quite nicely, okay. <laughs> Deborah. Because uh, if I if I hear what you're saying, you know, everything has been about. Um, an individual self-expression and and a, and a brightness and a, and almost a sense of joy um, and uh, art to celebrating to the way. life. Yes. I mean, look, it could be the, the look. It could be the first piece, for example. I know we're nearly finished now, but yeah. the very first piece I did for Yuki was really the very first major fashion piece of fabric I ever did, and I called it the beginning. And it was all done with wax resist and done with dip dyeing, special, but dip dyeing effects and techniques. It was eight metres long and it was called The Beginning and it unfurled into all the galaxies. It went to all the spheres of life. I mean, it went from the heavens, then it went down to the galaxy and into the earth and the, below the earth and all these different dimensions were all in that piece. Mm. And in a way, that piece was so symbolic. It was really my, the beginning, really, of, of quite a big career that I had in those days. And, um, and now I want to bring together all this, you know, these techniques and these sensibilities that I have and give it one last hurrah, so to speak. <laughs> Thank you, Deborah, for sharing your style story lovely. with me today. Thank you. It's been lovely talking to you. While we attribute the success of the Australiana fashion movement to the likes of Jenny Key and Linda Jackson, there is an alumni of creatives that contributed to this time, and Deborah was one of them. Her love of colour and appreciation of Australia's natural beauty may continue to inspire her, but it's her worldliness and thirst for knowledge that has differentiated her style and defined her story. With an eye-opening childhood, exposure to exotic travel and a desire to break a few rules along the way, Deborah has continually fused cultural influences and tinkered with artisan techniques to produce a rainbow of work that highlights her eclectic style and tells her colourful story.